Game Cool Books, episode 54, The Night is Full of Angels. Blood Moss, chapter 15, the last chapter in The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman. It's been mentioned a few times, the thing, Blood Moss, always in connection with its absence, and it closes the book as the title of this final chapter, holding out the promise of healing at last. With the alethiometer urging them on, Will and Lyra are guided by the witches through a landscape, much like the gulch where Lee Scoresby's made his last stand. And then on this last leg of their journey, they must come close to that place where Lee's body lies, but they're just too far inland to be caught in the storm or to hear the gunshots. The only sound, we're told, the stridulation of insects, that creature that Lee compared himself to, when he was an aeronaut no longer. Pan has a new form here too, a mountain sheep, vein of his horns. The image makes for an interesting threshold between innocence with the sheep and experience with the vanity. In this condition, movement alone feels good, and stillness is bad. They suffer more resting than moving, and there's possibly an echo here of the poem Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot. At the end, we preferred to travel all night sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Those lines come just before the ones that Philip Pullman likes to recite by heart in interviews. Then at dawn... We came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. Those words stir something in him, much the way Paradise Lost does. And Will's wound must partly account for his restlessness. The witch's fear of it, as of some curse greater than their own power, certainly seems well-founded. Their poetic spell was no match for it, any more than the cheap antiseptic surprised by Giacomo Piradisi. Again, the chapter title has already hinted at what Will needs, the end his restless movement is tending towards. At the landmark of an intense blue lake, Serafina gets called away by Lee's dying wish. Lyra can't finish her question before the witch is gone. That image is varied in her next move, to reach automatically for the alethiometer, but then stop short of asking it, since she's promised not to use it except to help Will. He is scorched and pale, and that's suggestive of his illness and of her pity. Will answers her question instead, do you know why you need to look for your father? And that's exactly the question she might have asked herself at the end of the first book. Will's answer, too, is vague. It's been given to him by his mother, and only partly understood, as Lyra's reason for seeking her father was given incompletely by the master at their hurried parting. Will says he is known, he known, he has known all his life that he needs to take up his father's mantle, which he believes to be some kind of task, and that that makes as much sense as anything, anyway. The narrator tells us what Will cannot. 
invoking language informed by our reading of the story of the gobblers, that he is yearning for his father as a lost child yearns for home. The narrator interrogates the simile he's just given, though. It's not quite right, given Will's burden of responsibility ever since his realization in the supermarket about his mother's state of need. So his heart craves to hear, Well done. I'm proud of you, son. You can go and rest now. He longs for that so much that he hardly knows he does. It's just a part of how everything feels to him. We as readers are permitted that insight, courtesy of the narrator, of course, but then we're shown how much of this Lyra is able to read, too, despite Will's inability to say it, and despite her not using the alethiometer to gain access to it. She has grown more perceptive, and she even is reflective on this, noting her own perceptiveness with surprise. It feels like a new sense where Will is concerned. But then another spur of action comes to her before she can speak of this to him. There's news that there are people following them from behind, and the witch goes back to see on Lyra's orders. They pick up on that image of Will's sunburn next, and Lyra talks about the weather for something to take their mind off of the danger of the pursuit and their misery. She's been cold plenty of times, she says, but never been this hot. Her question about Will's world brings back the topic of climate change, which has been hinted at strongly at the start of the book with Lee Scoresby's search for Stanislaus Grimmin amid the melting of the ice. Will's explanation does not appeal to the gap in the fabric of reality caused by Azrael, but instead to the real-world basis of pollution, humanity's responsibility for putting chemicals in the atmosphere. Lyra agrees and asserts that they're in the middle of it. There's a motif here of Pullman incorporating science in thematic ways. This one's, of course, less dramatic maybe than the Northern Lights, um, but it is still impactful, and it gets developed even further with the bear's journey early in the third book. Pan becomes a cricket now. The witches fetch water from the springs higher up, because any water here is swallowed again among the rocks. In these ways, the oppressive heat wafts to us off the pages and the author's politics with it. We shift to following Lena Felt, as the narrator names the witch, though Mrs. Coulter will consistently call her simply Witch. Her name might mean something like light in the field. Ironic, given the surroundings here, the blood red of rocks in the sunset by that intense blue lake where the soldiers that are pursuing them have camped for the evening, clearly following their trail somehow. They're the zombie troops that we've heard about. They have no demons, but she can tell they're from her world. And that horror is followed immediately by the explanation. She sees a short life, as full of life as the monkey demon capering beside her. She recognizes Mrs. Coulter from the mission at Bolvanger, 
She longs to shoot her, but some fortune, we're told, protects the woman. Witches recognize fate, we know this, but they don't bow to it, for Lena Felt begins to work an invisibility spell to get around the distance, get a clear shot. When she's confident, she tests it on the guards, who find what they see too hard to remember. Perhaps, being demonless, they are less able to pay attention to things anyhow, though. And then, like Serafina did, and then Will did later, the witch listens and observes Mrs. Coulter's conversation, again this time with Carlo Boreal. He asks how she can command the specters. He wants to know how she gets them to follow her about like dogs. Are they afraid of her bodyguard? This was his conjecture, repeated from his own idea from earlier when they talked in his, uh, his uh, study. But no, to her it's simple, that they'll get more nourishment if they follow her. She somehow has told them, made them understand that she can give them what their phantom hearts desire. Pallid things, she calls them. If her voice here is full of disdain or pity or amusement, perhaps she disguises it. Perhaps she openly gloats in turning to Boreal next and telling him, I can please you too, effectively comparing him to the specters and implying she can control him just as easily. The mechanism here, whatever her approach to the specters, is markedly sensual. Her monkey's hands stroke his emerald serpent demon. The drink they share is a Tokai-like golden wine, rather than chocolatel, but the scene in other respects looks very much like her capture of Tony Macarios by enticing his sparrow demon into those little hands. There's something more Boreal wants, though. This foretaste of the pleasure she can offer him is meant to coax it out of him. Through all this, meanwhile, the witch remains our point of view, curious to see what's happening, though the reader is probably frantic for her to kill Mrs. Coulter already, now that she's close enough, has a clear shot. The narrator heightens the suspense still more by pulling back to let us see what the witch does not. The grove of ghostly trees, a tremor stirring them like conscious attention. These pallid forms, echoing Mrs. Coulter's phrase, drift towards her across the water. Mrs. Coulter urges Boreal to whisper to her his secret, to pretend he's talking in his sleep. Just like she tried to cajole Lyra to give up her secrets in Bolvanger, and she insists she wants the girl, not whatever it is the boy has got. And finally, he relents. It's the knife that some call Telutaya Makaira, the last knife of all that's in Greek, others Asaheter. He doesn't give his translation of that. Has he trafficked with the ancient cliff ghasts? Or is he just in on the same jokes? It will cut anything, he thinks. He lists matter, spirit, angel, air. The distinction between those things may not be so sharp to us after what the messenger in the cave told Mary Malone about matter and spirit and angels. In short, Boreal believes nothing is invulnerable to its edge. Which edge, we wonder? And he claims it for himself. It's mine. 
I promise, says Mrs. Coulter, filling his glass, and adds a few drops from a flask of poison, like Lyra saw the master do at the start of the story, and here the witch still does not intervene. Drink to each other, she proposes. The man is already intoxicated. And suddenly, as the poison hits Boreal, so the witch inexplicably is stricken by paralysis as Mrs. Coulter turns on her. Well, witch, did you think I don't know how you make yourself invisible? When did she learn? How did she find out? Anyway, it's too late for Lena Felt. She feels something like a glass chamber being emptied of air, an image which recalls Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar, of what we might call depression, what Pullman insists on calling melancholy, the older phrase from Burton. As she fades, the witch perceives the force in Mrs. Coulter's soul, thinks to herself no one could resist that authority though this might already be the specterization process talking. And so she gives in, telling everything under the pain of this torture. What Mrs. Coulter wants, as badly as Boreal wanted the knife, is the prophecy about her daughter Lyra. She nearly learned it before, and she tells the witch, there's no one now to save you. The truth about her daughter we find out, finally, she is the mother, the life, the mother. She will disobey, and the name, the most important thing, Mrs. Coulter insists, Eve, mother of all, Eve again, Mother Eve. The woman lets out a sigh as if the purpose of her life were clear to her at last. That as if implies Mrs. Coulter thinks her purpose is clear. But the story will turn out very much differently than she or the reader perhaps thinks at this point. She thinks her purpose is to destroy her daughter, to prevent another fall. But much like Lord Asriel said he would destroy dust, only to end up changing his tune in the third book, this purpose will shift dramatically. Just like she says of Lyra's true name, it is still too large for her to see her own destiny, even as she claps her hands like a child wide-eyed, a threshold image of her own. The war on the authority, as before, so again, these fragments might uh, point out some ecclesiastical overtones, echoing language about nothing new under the sun. She immediately interposes with a crucial difference, though. This time, she will not fall. And as she summons the specter to her, the witch feels a terrible nausea, that her senses had lied to her, that the world is not the delight that we have heard about from Rudiscati's narration, but that uh, that it is full of melancholy, and that is the first, last, and only truth, we're told. 
now as she becomes indifferent, dead in life. Boreal, meanwhile, sprawled unconscious. His demon is still there, so he must be alive, though if Pullman had thought of bringing him back later, it changes his mind about that. Mrs. Coulter orders a night march. The pillars of mist forget their earthbound and float up like malignant thistledown born by air currents. Very much like Grumman, actually, whom we also saw command the specter. He, too, thinks his purpose is clear. And the similarity between them, Mrs. Coulter and John Perry, is, to say the least, unsettling. Above, under an overhanging rock, Lyra's unconscious and she'll be out of commission for quite a while into the third book. But Will can't sleep. This threshold between the sleep and the waking is another of those innocence experience points here at the end of the pivotal second book. And so we're back within Will's viewpoint, just as we began the book in the middle of the night, with his external suffering much greater now, the swollen hand, his exhaustion, but his internal longing for his mother, very much the same. It's articulated now that want her to bandage him, to tuck him into bed, to sing to him, to comfort him with mother kindness. And part of him is only a little boy still. So he cries, but instead of talking to Pan, like the previous night, or to Lyra, he sets off, moving to calm his restlessness. A century witch, whom we might recognize by her demon, resolves to follow and watch over him, not noticed, and he doesn't notice even his pain at this point, so intent is he on going further, is ready to walk forever. Again, that idea of movement, of progress, being the treatment for suffering, for this fever in his breast. It's what those who are struck by specters never feel again. The wind rises as if in sympathy with him. It's that wind that blew Rudiscotti off course and that John Perry summoned against the Zeppelins. In this romantic setting, it's wild outside and wild within him. He's not thinking how he's going to get back down to Lyra. The description of this final ascent of Will's, though, echoes passages from the end of the first book, almost word for word, with those mountains no higher than him all around, the glare of moonlight, the black and white, the jagged, the bare rocks. Then suddenly there comes the crisis. In near total darkness, as clouds cover over the moon, he feels a grip on his right arm, Will turns savage. He feels he's at the end of everything. He can't get at the knife. He bites. He elicits the only blow from his antagonist and then kicks and manages to trip him so he falls with Will on top. His fear grips his heart like the hand around his arm, the fear of never being let go by this foe, that the corpse would still hold on even if Will kills him. It's a horrifying image. Desperate, 
sobbing. He finally notices that the man has fallen still and is letting Will batter at him, at which he feels the strength go out of him and falls beside his opponent. The first thing that becomes visible is the osprey demon nearby. So we know now, if we hadn't guessed already, who Will is fighting, which only makes the scene stranger. Why wouldn't the shaman simply speak to Will? Why this combat? It seems to be a kind of test and a kind of penance. And then he feels for Will's hand, causing the boy's hair to stand on end. He holds out his other hand and tells him to be careful and feels the delicacy of his touch on the stumps of his missing fingers. At that, he lets go, confirming by this sign that he is the knife-bearer. He wonders if he's wounded this dark opponent. He can tell he's hurt by the sound of his voice, and although he himself has been wounded, Will finally feels a marvelous, soothing coolness at the man's touch. He goes from gripping to testing to curing Will's wound. The shaman identifies himself not by any of his many different names, but as the only man who knows what the knife is for. It leaves us to wonder once more just what Boreal's intention might have been, whether he too knows what the knife is for, and what was the source of his knowledge. The wind now carries drops of rain with it, corresponding to that blessed, cool, numbness Will feels all along his wound. He touches the man's chest, finding the heart like a bird against the bars of a cage. He says he'll be better soon, clearly expecting the release of death one way or the other. Will's questions continue to be about him, but instead, the shaman tells him about his great task. A child, he mutters. How could they let it happen? It makes us wonder who they are. Is it the guild? Is it some other powers that Grimmin serves? He announces, as we've been hearing all along, that war is coming. Just as Umak the driver knew, and as Mrs. Coulter recently put together, it is the recurrence of the mythic war which happened before. And like Mrs. Coulter, Grimmin is convinced that it can go differently this time. This time he says the right side must win. He bemoans the lies, the cruelty of the authorities' regime. He concludes, it's time we started again properly. And this brings him back to the knife. Setting aside the ignorance of its makers, who used it to steal candy, it is the only weapon, he says, which can defeat the tyrant, the authority, God. His thesis is that the rebel angels fell in the original war because they did not have such a weapon. This implies, like the ancient Cliffgast said, that Grumman thinks Azrael can't win without it. What's more, they have no choice now that the knife's been found. The enemy knows by now, too. And if they aren't defeated, the enemy will use it against them forever. 
The logic of a unilaterally assured destruction is suggestive that the art of making another such knife has been lost. Will protests that he's been fighting too much. He can't go on fighting. But the shaman just turns that into another argument for his cause. Hasn't Will won his fights? Then he's a warrior. He may argue with anything else, but not with his own nature. That's just what Azriel told Mrs. Coulter, not to argue with what she really wants, suggesting that there's some analogy between desire and one's nature. This resonates with Will as an unwelcome truth, heavy but inescapable. The shaman lays it out in starkly Manichaean terms, exactly the sort of thing Pullman is on the record objecting to forcefully as a fantasy trope, so we should be on our guard here. There are two great powers, humanity's advancements, I might think of that image of movement, of Will's urgent need to keep moving, where every scrap of knowledge is torn from the teeth of the other power, and is this the sort of wrestling that we have just seen? Is it actually a test? He says it's to grow wiser or to humbly submit. These are the two choices, as if these were necessarily opposed rather than in some sense congruent. But how we take the conflict depends on our theory of human nature, desire, and God. Each side wants the same thing, though, the knife, more than anything. We might wonder now, how can that be true when Asriel doesn't even know about its existence? It sure sounded like what Asriel wanted more than anything was for Mrs. Coulter to come with him, to the point he projected it onto her as her own greatest desire. The shaman wraps up his great commission then. Will has been guided there, and that's true enough, by Lyra's reading of the lithiometer. And, this part is not true, though neither of them knows it, he says this meeting was not what Will was looking for, but it is what he found. We might map that onto Will's winning of the knife in the first place, and what Joachim Paradisi told him. Giacomo Paradisi told him when he tried to give it back then. There follows one last crisis corresponding to the wrestling match. This happens within the shaman himself. It's signaled by the cascade of his many names. It shifts to his perspective, and the narrator overlays the moment of hesitation over his oath with the kaleidoscopic identity of the man who swore it, but this poetic and solemn syntax signals his righteous certainty of the final decision. Break it, he did. He tells Will to go to Azrael, tell him he has the knife and what it's for. He needs to ignore everything else and go there. He says someone else will appear to guide him. The night is full of angels. His wound will heal, and last of all, the shaman immediately recants part of the force of his urgent sending, for he detains Will once more to look at him properly. 
that word he used for the new beginning promised by victory in this cosmic struggle. And it suggests that this is what victory would actually look like. Seeing one another face to face in the light of one of those ordinary matches and his lantern. Very much the explorer that Will always imagined his father being in his games. There's a wild curiosity in their look. And the shaman sees the brows so like his mother's. They have a flicker of something else coming to both before abruptly John Perry is shot down, an arrow in his failing heart. Will is stupefied, yet he catches the robin demon mid-flight, drawn close, presumably by its own curiosity, and the witch is pulled with it, panicking. Utakaminen crashes and finds the knife at her throat. Her reason for shooting John Perry was that she loved him and he scorned her. That reason is coupled with a still stronger one, rooted in her identity as a witch. She does not forgive. We see where that leads her. They're the beginnings of a change of heart, perhaps, in her fear of will, who holds in him more force and danger than anyone she's met, just what Lena felt perceived in Mrs. Coulter. But he is the one full of despair now. To her, that this could have been his father is impossible, prompting one of the most dramatic outbursts we get from the normally stoic young man. You think things have to be possible? Things have to be true. Shaking her like a rag doll, threatening her life, he's full of astonishment, and she, in turn, of supplication. Why, he has to ask, did she kill him? But she says she can't explain. He's too young and it wouldn't make sense. But she says again that she loved him and that was enough. With her own knife, she takes her life and he's left in desolation and still more bafflement. Looking at the bodies, her lips parted like a lover's. He repeats, again, he doesn't understand. It's too strange for him. He touches his father's body. We hear more names now as he addresses him with those words that he never got to use in his childhood. He repeats, father, dad, daddy, and he repeats again, that he doesn't understand why she would have done that. Then his own name, Will, is echoed in his resolution that he will be a warrior, that he will help Azriel, and he will fight. He tells his father to rest now, just what he had longed to hear. And then, fulfilling the prophecy of his own, he takes up his father's pack and heavy cloak, that is, his mantle. As he returns down the slope slowly, there's a confusion of shapes and electric tension in the air 
cries and chanting and the clash of arms, like what we heard from Joachim Lorenz in his story of overhearing a fight between angels. In this case, there are two of those figures waiting for Will in the darkness. He hears their voice like wing beats. They say they are not men, but watchers, angels. Their task has been simple so far, following the shaman. Now they will guide Will to Lord Asriel. It doesn't seem quite right that he had no idea they were following him. As he said, the night is full of angels. But perhaps he wasn't particular about which ones were around. The two of them must have allowed the witch to kill him too. But they say that this was because his task was over. That task that Will has just taken up. To find Will, and now Will says that first he must check on Lyra. He passes by close and feels a kind of tingle in there, a different kind of current or tension. The explanation for the sounds he's heard comes in the witches' bodies, all like statues or fallen, testifying to their being attacked in midair by specters, indifferently dying as they fell to earth. And still more strange, the hollow under the rock where he left Lyra is now empty, except for the rock sack with the alethiometer still there. Like the fact of what he experienced up above, it couldn't be true, but it was. The narrator repeats three times, Lyra was gone, she was captured, she was lost, and the angels repeat three times to Will that they have brought uh, him this far and he must come with them too. The book then ends on a note of fatality, of stillness, of shock that Will looked back and forth and didn't hear a word they said. The powerful suspense of that moment would last three years from the initial publication of The Subtle Knife until the sequel, the conclusion of the story in The Amber Spyglass in 2000. I hope that I'll continue my discussion of these books a little more quickly than that, but for now, I'll leave you with the analogs to this final scene. We have the Jacob-Israel wrestling the angel, in the Bible, we have the other fights that Will has won throughout the book. And then the conflict which closes the first book as well. That parallel, to me, caps the way that the structure of the two follow a roughly similar shape, with this book bifurcating between the two protagonists and then following the witches and Lee Scoresby and Mary Malone, signaling the way that the third book will open into still greater complexity following its larger cast of characters. The future of this project then is relatively straightforward. I want to keep going. I want to talk about The Amber Spyglass in some detail. 
and at least touch upon the newer books that have come out since, maybe just with a conversation or a review of The Secret Commonwealth and La Belle Sauvage, The Book of Dust. I'm working on some drafts of papers. You can read what I have so far on my academia profile and uh, put up what I get when I split that up and rework it uh, in my revisions. I'm also finding that reviewing other books and other scholars' work is much easier than writing my own, not surprisingly. But I'll continue reaching out to others who are working in this same field and try to expand with uh, not only the new books, but perhaps a review of the new TV series as well. Uh, I appreciate, again, all your time and attention, and I hope you'll send in any questions and comments when you get a chance. Thanks again for listening. Take care.